y'all are going to, I'm going to have to beg an indulgence because uh, it's been a long time since I've uh, been able to stand up here. And uh, I have to confess, I like it a lot. Um, I used to, uh, when I was a kid, I used to always think it was odd when my mom talked about going home. I wanted to go see Grandma and Grandpa. And, you know, I thought, well, but this is our home. Um, as I've gained a few years since then, and a few gray hairs along the way, um, I understand more what she talks about, because God brings together people and, and, and places and times and experiences together sometimes in a combination um, that makes that home. And um, this place, uh, for me, for my family, has always uh, been a home. Uh, it's a place where... <laughs> it's a place, you know, where, where's home? It's a place where uh, the hugs are more heartfelt. Uh, the songs are a little bit sweeter. Um, I've been a little bit shocked. Um, I see all these kids that used to run or dance around and they're young men and women now um, and uh, I Helen and Roscoe told me that the uh, piece of property across the street for them was for sale and there's a part of me that wants to buy that piece of property um, uh, then I know that I got my little piece of home that I keep I always know I have <laughs> uh, but it's good to be back here it's good to see all these faces um, there's a lot of you out there that owe me a hug, so don't leave till you get one, or you give one to me. Today's sermon text is from Matthew 16. It's uh, verses 13 through 23, and uh, I hope that you'll follow along with me. I'm going to have to put some glasses on this time. Um, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this, sh this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Hey, the glasses look good, man. Let's pray together. How precious is your steadfast love, O oh God. And the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river not the eyedropper, but the river of your delights. For with you, with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. So Father, I'm asking now for the sake of your children, and I include myself in that petition, that you will make your a presence known to us and in a particular way of disclosing by the Spirit's ministry uh, the beauty and the power and the goodness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We need to see our King again this morning, and we want to. And I'm asking also for those uh, not yet reconciled to you, that you will call them in your sovereign and effectual grace this morning, and you will rescue them uh, from their sins. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're back uh, in this uh, key passage in the Gospel of Matthew, and, and last week we looked, um, we looked at a single theme uh, from this passage that comes out of a single word. Uh, remember the, the necessity of the cross, and that, that all grew out of just looking at that one word, must, in verse 21. We saw that Jesus is describing, teaching his disciples, describing his mission to them, the mission ultimately that, that is going to build his church. That's why I wanted to start at the end of the passage, because Unless we start there, we'll, we'll be all out of kilter with the rest of how we understand this passage. And so I wanted us to begin last week by seeing very clearly how Jesus thinks about what is his mission by which he is going to be building his church. And we saw that the way Jesus describes his mission is in terms of a four-fold necessity. Do you remember that? He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and, uh, and the scribes. He must be killed. In other words, he's not just going to die, but he must be killed. There's a big difference, right? He must be judicially executed, in other words. And he must, on the third day, be raised from the dead. And so we saw that uh, that the way Jesus is describing his mission is in terms of the necessity of his cross. And so we worked hard last week to think through and to understand what does it mean 
that the cross is necessary. And that is very important to understand because if you get that wrong, you won't understand Christianity. And we saw that there's a sense in which the cross is not necessary and there's a sense in which it is absolutely necessary. The sense in which the cross is not necessary is this. The cross is not necessary in order for God to be God. God had no obligation to save a single sinner. His glory would not have been compromised. It would not have been diminished whatsoever. It is not God's job to forgive. It is not necessary for him to forgive sinners. Unless we begin with that recognition, we will always place ourselves at the center of the gospel. When in fact, the center of the gospel is the good news of who God is. The cross is not the duty of God to the world. It's the beauty of God. The cross is not a duty that God's heart owed to the world. Oh, you need to feel that, friends. We have no right to the cross in ourselves. And until we get that and are gotten by that, grace will not be amazing. No, the cross is not the duty of God's heart to the world. It's the beauty of God, uh, God's heart. It's not the duty of God's heart owed to the world as if his back were up against the wall when Adam and Eve fall. No, it's the beauty of God bestowed upon the world all as, as a, the outflow of his sovereign grace. It's absolutely stunning. And that is the mission which builds Jesus' church. And, and because that's the nature of that must from verse 21, that means that all of the events that Jesus describes in verse 21, having to go to Jerusalem, having to suffer many things, having to be judicially executed, and being raised on the third day, then what he's saying about all those events that are very painful uh, other than the resurrection, and re- what we're going to see in the second half of the Gospel of Matthew, what he's saying about every one of those events is he's saying, let me give you, my disciples, the interpretive key for all those events. Those aren't going to be bad things that just happened to me. The, every one of those things is a gift from me to you. Because if I don't do those things, having decided, right, to save sinners all as an act of my free grace and love. If I don't do every one of those things, there will be no salvation for you. And so my suffering is my gift to you. My judicial execution is my gift to you. That crown of thorns is my gift to you. My uh, refusal to... uh, take myself down from the cross. That is my gift to you so that I might fulfill who I am. Not so that God might be God, but so that you might be God's. You might belong to him and be reconciled to him as children. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to move from that confession that, or excuse me, that mission uh, on which Jesus builds his church, this amazing summary of his mission, and move to the confession of Peter uh, on behalf of the disciples on which Jesus says he's going to build his church. And we'll look at it in uh, three senses. We're going to look at the marvel of unbelief this morning. 
the marvel of belief. And then we're going to look at three pastoral applications, Lord willing, if we have time. So that confession, look at the confession. First of all, I just want you to have it before you. Verse 16, Jesus asks in verse 15, who do you say that I am? And it's very important to see that when he says this in verse 15, the you is plural there. So he's saying it to all the disciples. Who do you guys, or sorry, we're in a place where they say this. I didn't grow up in a place where they say this. Who do you all say that I am? Wow, I did it publicly. It's now, on a, it's now recorded. Who do you all say that I am? Wow, it doesn't feel right. But it's important to see that, and especially uh, as we move uh, through the passage, that Jesus is addressing the disciples as a group. And so when Peter answers in verse 16, he's answering as the representative of the disciples. Okay? He's doing it himself, but he's also rep- representing all the disciples. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus commends him for it in verse 17. That's the marvel of belief. But before we look at the marvel of belief, I want to, look at the, I want to think with you about the marvel of unbelief. I'm not a diamond merchant, okay? Surprise, surprise. So... So I don't know this from personal experience, but I've read about it, actually, and I've seen it in movies, that when a diamond merchant wants to show off the quality of a stone, he or she will usually spread out a dark cloth and set, then set the stone against that backdrop so that the contrast is very dramatic and the quality of the stone can be seen through the contrast. And that's really how I want to begin this morning. I want to lay down that dark cloth of unbelief first so that we'll be able to then to place a Peter's a confession and Jesus' commendation of that confession against it. We'll see it for its real beauty. But until you see uh, the marvel of unbelief, and there's a reason I keep using that word, as I'm going to tell you in a moment, the marvel of unbelief, the, the stunning marvel of belief won't be easily seen. So turn with me, if you will, uh, to Mark uh, chapter 6. And, and the reason I'm, I'm beginning here is because, guys, we take both belief and unbelief way too lightly. We think of them as the most natural things in the world, and we, particularly with unbelief, we just assume it's natural. There are probably people in this room who assume right, that unbelief is where you, is the natural default position where you should start. And that what's, what's really amazing is belief. But you know, that's not how Jesus saw it. If we saw the unbelief of men through the eyes of Jesus, it would stun us. It would shock us. It would move us. Look at Mark chapter 6, starting verse 1. Now, he's in Nazareth now, okay? He went away from there and came to his hometown, which is Nazareth. This is on page 841 in your pew Bible. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, that's his home synagogue. This, he's in the place where he has spent the better part of three decades. He's with people. He spent more time with the people that in that synagogue and in that community than with any other people on planet Earth. 
He's in his hometown synagogue on the Sabbath, and verse 2, and many who heard him were astonished. Is this a good astonishment or a bad astonishment? Let's keep reading. Saying, where did this man, uh uh-oh, doesn't sound good. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? Now see, now notice, they're acknowledging that he is exceptional. They're acknowledging that his teaching is characterized by wisdom. How are such mighty works done by his hands? Ah, now they know about his miracles. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary? Now notice they leave Joseph out. Why? Because everybody in Nazareth knew that the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth were suspect. So it's kind of a dig. Son of Mary, we don't know for sure that he's the son of Joseph. Wink, wink. And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. These are the people who know him the best. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his, his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, that's a very strong word, marveled. It's used throughout the New Testament. It's only used twice with Jesus as the subject here and in describing Jesus' reaction to the centurion's faith. So when Jesus is the subject of this verb, it only is used to describe Jesus' reaction to unbelief and to belief. And here he is marveling at their unbelief, not because he's surprised. It's not the, it's not the marveling of surprise. It's, he, he, he knows, right? It's not the marveling of admiration. This is what, he, what, what this is describing is that his heart is moved by their unbelief. He is stirred by their unbelief. Why? Well, first, look at the little parable he tells in verse 4. Now think about this logic is very surprising. He says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. See he's talking about himself. He's saying this proverb is my experience. Now look it's exactly the opposite of what we expect. It's a double negative so it's easy to miss but he's saying hey listen a prophet is honored everywhere else except in his hometown. Shouldn't it work the other way? He intensifies it. And among his relatives. <laughs> Surely his relatives who know him the best, they know him even better than the people in his hometown. They ought to honor the prophet. And in his own household. See, he keeps going into the, he works from the outside to the inmost circle, the inmost ring, and he is saying that even my own family rejects me. Now, friends, that is absolutely shocking. The people who know Jesus the best take offense at him. And it's not because they don't have access to evidence. 
It's not because they lack true and accurate information about him. They know his wisdom. They recognize his wisdom. They know his mighty deeds. And yet still, they take offense at him. And Jesus is moved. He marvels at the unbelief of men. Friends, Jesus Christ does not take the unbelief of men in stride. He doesn't just accept it. He marvels at it. It stirs him. It moves him. And this is a window, friends, into the depth of the way sin works on the heart and its evaluation of Jesus Christ's claims. You see, there is an underlying hostility to God and to the claims of God upon the human heart. Sin's very DNA is hostility to God. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That is the DNA of sin. And what sin does is it reproduces after its own kind. Because sin essentially says the mission statement of sin is that God is not king, I am. So every piece of evidence, every fact, every sign, every reminder, every declaration that God is king, sin says, oh, no, he's not. So it doesn't matter what evidence you show. It's already a filter set up. It's just like a presidential debate. President Obama, didn't matter what Mitt Romney said, President Obama would never say, you're right about that. Nor would Mitt Romney ever say to President Obama, you know, I changed my position because of what you just said. There's a commitment at the beginning that determines how all the evidence is going to be evaluated. The evidence doesn't determine the commitment. The the pre-existing commitment determines how the evidence is going to be viewed. No, Jesus' reaction of marveling at the unbelief of men, that's the, that's the accurate measure, friends. That's, that's how we should respond to the unbelief of men. Jesus looks at the unbelief of these people. He looks at our unbelief where, where we are not believing in him, and he marvels at it. Why does he marvel at it? Because unbelief is such hard work. Do you realize that? Unbelief is such hard work. And I know you think I'm crazy when I say that, but it is hard work. That's what Scripture teaches. But you know why? Because unbelief is premised on self-deception. Because everywhere you are and everything you experience and every, that's external to you and inside of you, the whole universe outside of you, your heart and your conscience is all reverberating with the message that God is King and that you belong to him, that you are his, that you are not your own. Your conscience tells you that. The order in the universe tells you that. The beauty in the universe tells you that. Even the the critiques that you use to criticize God, you know, that how could he be, how could he allow so much evil? How come there isn't justice? Do you notice in both of those critiques, which are very common, you are stealing, you're embezzling from God the standard of what good is, And you're embezzling from God the standard 
of, of what justice is. Where do you get those standards? If there's no God and the universe just went boom, well then where does your idea of justice come from? Why is your idea of justice any better than the justice that Ahmadinejad, the, the president, I can't even say his name, the guy in Iran. You know who I'm talking about. Absolute nut job. How come he doesn't get to decide? Where did your standard come from? You know, unbelief is like this massive Ponzi scheme that makes Bernie Madoff look like a piker. Because you are constantly, atheism has to steal from theism in order to prop up atheism. The very arguments that you would use to support atheism, you have to, you have to borrow objective truth from theism that your own worldview has no account for. You have to steal in order to support your worldview. Yeah, that's a lot of work. And, and unbelief is also very self-destructive. It's not just self-deceptive, it's, it's very self-destructive. Because everything in you about what it means to be human, everything, goes in the direction of God. You cannot be fully human until you are fully His. To, to, to be a human being and to walk away or resist or, or repudiate uh, your creator is to decreate yourself. That's a lot of work. And then finally, unbelief is the most perverse form of self-denial. It's insanity. Now, I say this as a guy who was converted when he was 19, okay? So, so I didn't grow up in the church, and so I'm saying this, I'm saying this with an urgency that comes from what I see in, in God's Word and also uh, with experience. And, you know, there is an insanity about unbelief because, because why would you ever deny yourself? Think about it. Uh, if, you, if you're not a Christian this morning, thank you for coming. Thank you for not getting up and walking out already. Can I just ask you, friend, to step back from yourself just for a minute and think about your unbelief? Just step back from yourself if you can do it. Step back for a minute uh, from what you have thought until now about Jesus Christ, and let's just, let's just think about it, okay? Why would you ever deny yourself the God who did not deny himself to you. The God who is long-suffering, the God who is full of steadfast love, who is gracious and merciful and patient, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, whose beauty exceeds your wildest imaginations, whose goodness knows no end, uh, the God who did not only not deny himself to you, but did not deny his son to you when you were under his wrath and gave his son as a substitute to bear your sins in his place so that you might receive 
through Christ, the righteousness of God as your permanent standing before God, that God who did not deny his gospel to you, who is not denying that gospel to you right now and is not denying his kingdom to you and an eternal inheritance to you, why would you ever deny him? Not on a rational basis. Unbelief is a lot of hard work. So stop working so hard. Jesus marvels at the damage, at the wreckage, at the debris field that sin has wrought in the hearts of men. He marvels at it. It moves him because he knows who he is. He knows why he has come. He knows who his father is. He knows what sin has lost better than you and I. Trust him. Let him be your instruments. Let, let the readings of your peril be the ones that Jesus gives to you, not the ones that you have in your own head. Trust Jesus' judgment more than your own. And the reason you ought to trust his, his judgment about your actual peril and the promise of God uh, better than your own evaluation is he went to the cross and bled for the price of those promises. Trust him. Let's think now about the marvel of belief because there is a contrast. Let's go back to Matthew 16. Saving faith. You know, we, we, take, uh, we take unbelief too lightly and we take uh, saving faith. We take belief way too lightly. If we saw unbelief through the eyes of Jesus, we would marvel. If we saw saving faith through the eyes of Jesus, we would marvel. So think about Peter's confession. Jesus is asking now the disciples who do you say that I am? The people, uh, the people have a scattershot opinion. Uh, they think he's a prophet. They think he's from God. They, but they're not sure. Is he Elijah? Is he one of the other prophets? Is he Jeremiah? They don't know. And so Jesus says, okay, are you guys any farther along? And Peter says, yes. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Now, we're going to look at what those, ter- those terms mean uh, in, in, a, in several weeks. We're not going to look at them now, but let me just summarize what, what Peter is saying. He's saying, in effect, to Jesus, you're the, you're the expected deliverer. You're the Messiah. You're the, prom- the long-promised and the long-expected Messiah. You are David's heir. That's what it means for him to be the son of the living God. To be, you're the king, the king we have been waiting for, and you're going to deliver us. And Peter is absolutely right about it. And so are the disciples. And look how Jesus responds. What he does is he explains Peter's confession to him in verse 17. This is very important to see this. He doesn't just let it sit. What he says in verse 17 is so dramatic. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of of John, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now notice there are two parts to Jesus' explanation of uh, Peter's confession. There's a negative part and there's a, there's a celebration part. There's a positive part. And the first thing Jesus does is he, he, he takes away a, a, a certain theory, if you will, uh, about Peter's confession 
And then he establishes, by that contrast, the correct understanding of where Peter's confession came through from. Because where, where did Peter's confession come from? I mean, you might think it would be the most natural thing in the world, right? To think, well, Mike, they've been with him for nearly three years. They've had time with him. They've seen his miracles. They've sat under his teaching. They've heard his wisdom. Uh, they, they've spent time with him. They've seen him up close. Friends, all those things were true of the people in Nazareth. Just hanging around Jesus doesn't lead to the confession, my friends. Having access to true information about Jesus doesn't lead to the confession. Why is Simon blessed? Why is Peter blessed? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. See what Jesus is doing? He is, from the beginning, excluding every explanation for Peter's faith and the disciples' faith, every explanation in the universe except for one. He is categorically excluding, from the beginning, any explanation for Peter's confession except the miraculous. Not flesh and blood. Earth, earth did not produce this confession, Simon. You need to know this. You need to know that it was nothing in you, even you who are not just my disciple, but you're the leader of the disciples. You're going to be with me on the Mount of Transfiguration in the next chapter. You have seen things and will see things that no other disciple will see. And yet, even in your case, even you... It's not your intellectual, your keen intellectual strength. It's not your moral superiority. It's not the superiority of your logic. It's not your spiritual insight. No, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal my identity to you. And what separates you from the people in Nazareth, what distinguishes you is not your cleverness and not your intelligence and not the moral quality of your life. No, what separates you from them is that, is that my Father has revealed this to you. So what Jesus is doing, this is so critical to see this, friends, that when Jesus is describing the confession, the faith on which he's going to build his church, that's going to characterize his church, what he does from the very beginning is categorically exclude any trace of human ability or human merit. Not flesh and blood. If you're going to know the truth about Jesus Christ... Understand this, that the, that the materials with which he is going to build his church have nothing to do with human ability or human merit for flesh and blood. You are blessed, Simon Barjona. Sounds, sounds like he's going to say, congratulations, you did a good job. And what he does immediately is he's, you're blessed, not because of your merit, and not because of your ability, and not because of any other human's merit, and not because of any other human's ability, but you're blessed because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Now, friends, we need to hear that. 
We need to hear that again. That that what Jesus is celebrating here is not what Peter has achieved, not what we have achieved, but what Peter and the disciples have received. What you and I, not what you and I have achieved, but what we've received. You see, what Jesus is saying to Peter is he's saying, Peter, your confession, you're blessed, and you're way more blessed than you realize. If, I only, if you were only blessed to the extent of your keen spiritual insight, if you were only blessed to the extent of your moral ability or your, more, your relative moral superiority compared to your neighbors, if you were only blessed on the basis of your decisions, then that is a very shallow, weak, fleeting, evanescent uh, uh, blessing. Because you know what? Tomorrow, well, actually, in the space of just a few verses, you're going to make a really lousy decision. You're not going to be morally superior. So if your blessing is only as deep as your ability or your merit, well, that's not even a kiddie pool. But no, the real blessing, Jesus is saying, is as deep. The blessing that is yours is as deep as the Father's heart. It's not your ability. It's not your strength. It's not your mind. It's not your heart, Peter, that has produced this confession. And friends, it's not yours either. It's not your heart that has made you a Christian. It's not your strength that has made you a Christian. It's not your mind that has made you a Christian, friends. It's the Father's heart that has made you a Christian if you are in Christ today. It's the Father's will that has made you a Christian today. If you're in Christ, it's the Father's mind that has made you a Christian today. Friends, sin destroys the will of men. It conquers and it reproduces after its own kind, right? If men and women are left to themselves, they will never choose Jesus Christ. They won't. Because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, for indeed it cannot. Jesus says this in many other places, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 65. No one can. That's an ability word, right? No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The will of fallen men and women is not a free agent, able to choose between, equally between two good options. The will of fallen man has been ruined by sin. That's what it means to fall. So that every capacity that we have has been bent away from God. So friends, unless there is a will deeper than the will of men, unless there is a will beneath the will of men that wills to raise the will of men up out of its hostility against God and up to God, unless there is a will beneath the will of men, stronger than the will of men, that wants the eternal welfare of men more than men want it, unless there is a will 
that wants men to be saved, wants to save men more than men want to be saved, unless that will exist, no one will be saved. And that is exactly what Jesus is celebrating here, just like he did in chapter 11. Just like he did in chapter 11 when he says, I praise you, Father, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. See, Jesus already taught us in chapter 11 that the only way anyone comes to a knowledge of the Son is if the Father opens up the treasury of the Trinity and then bids the sinner welcome in. You see, this is God's work. God's work of giving himself away. God's work of drawing the sinner in. God's work of opening the sinner's eyes to see the worth of Jesus. And we say, praise be to God, that there is a will beneath my will. That there is a will beneath your will that, that, that wants to save you that is stronger than your own will not to be saved. That though you have turned your back on God, though you think him a very small creature and not worth your time, though you are casual about sin and casual about holiness, he is not casual about any of those things. He is not casual about that your eternal welfare, your unbelief moves him. Your peril moved him to send his son into the world. Your peril moved him to bring you here this morning. And Christian, what I'm saying to you is that, is that your conversion is much bigger than you realize It's much more wonderful than you realize. Isn't it awesome that the blessing that Jesus pronounces on you because you say to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, is deeper than your will, is deeper than your obedience, is deeper than your decisions, your your future track record, because guess what? It's going to really be lousy. If your confidence of having God's blessing was only as deep as your good decisions, oh, my friends, then you wouldn't be blessed. But Jesus says to Peter, and we know, think about it, we know what's going to happen in Peter's life. He's going to be the ultimate roller coaster. And Jesus is never going to pull this blessing back from him. Never. You believe that? Think about that. He never pulls it back. Why? Because Peter's salvation has nothing to do with Peter's merit or Peter's ability, and neither does yours. Blessed are you. You see, conversion, where this is supposed to lead us, I have no idea how I'm going to get to my applications. You say, well, wait a second. There you go with that Calvinistic jangle stuff again. 
that's so impractical. Oh, it's so practical. Right? Because here's, here's the practical effect of this, is to get you to humble yourself before God. To really humble yourself and to say, you know what? I literally have nothing. You literally have everything. What Jesus says in verse 17 should lead us, and you'll know that the Holy Spirit is moving in your life. The closer you are getting, the closer you are being drawn to a place of despair. Despair in yourself. Despair in your ability. You are be, you'll know the Holy Spirit is showing you the truth about God's holiness and your sin and the worth of Christ as you are seeing and feeling more dramatically the reality that you cannot save yourself. And you have nothing to contribute to your own redemption except the sin from which you must be delivered. So there's a self-despair that the Holy Spirit means to produce and that verse 17 should produce. But that despair, it's very interesting, that despair is necessarily linked when the Spirit is working with, a, with an absolute dependence upon God and trust in His heart. So you're despairing that the answer for your hope would ever be found in your own heart. You're abandoning hope in your own heart, and you are casting yourself fully, abandoning yourself to hoping only in God's heart. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. And that's how this is supposed to work in your life, friends. I pray that it would. And keep coming to him. Keep acknowledging your absolute despair that, the, that your hope can't be here. It can't be in your own heart. And tell God that you want to be enabled to abandon every shred of hope in yourself and cast yourself fully, abandoning yourself fully to hoping only in him and in his kindness in Christ. And keep doing that. And I trust that he will bring you in. Why should you trust that? Because the Father loves his Son, and the Father loves sinners. Exhibit A, that's your confidence. Okay, three applications very quickly in three minutes. First application. Friends, this should be a treasured confession. Your confession, if you're a Christian this morning, your confession that you know Christ is to be treasured in your life. It is the most important thing about you. It will be the most important thing about you for all eternity. It defines you now. It is precious knowledge. Jesus treasures your confession, just like he treasured Peter's. And Jesus looks at you. If you trust in him and you know him as your Messiah, you know him as your king, you know him as your Lord, Jesus looks upon you and says, you are blessed. He treasures your confession. Do you? Do you realize that the most important knowledge in the universe has been entrusted to you? The knowledge of the Son. Do you realize, if you're in Christ this morning, do you realize that you are a miracle? That's what verse 17 means. You are a miracle because of the Father's work in you. That he has brought you to Christ. And friends, you should treasure your confession. Treasure it. And, and so, if that's true about us, 
if those things are, are true, if the Father is, is enabled, think about this. If we're saying to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that, you know what that means? That means that the Father has enabled us to see his Son through his eyes. So how come our lives aren't more full of gratitude? And how come we act like we don't need to really pursue growth in the Christian life? How come we act like our faith is our faith? It's not. You're a Christian today because God the Father opened up the the treasury of the Trinity and brought you all the way in. So I don't want to hear you tell me you think the Bible is boring. I don't want to hear you tell me that prayer is agony without you first remembering this, what God has done. I don't want to hear you tell me that worship goes too long. It doesn't go long enough. Application number two. Notice that this is a person-to-person confession. It's a you to you. Notice that when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, after Jesus commends him in verse 17, notice Jesus echoes right back. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Friends, that is Christianity in a microcosm right there. Second person to second person, not third person to third person, talking about Jesus like he's not a real person or he's over there instead of right here. This is Christianity in a microcosm. You are my king. You're my Messiah. You're my savior. You're my advocate. You're my deliverer. You're my propitiation. And Jesus saying back to you, You know, we say that with hearts that are full of weakness and wonder. And Jesus says back to us, and this is a story of every day of the Christian life. Not just once, but every day of the Christian life. You. You, not he. Because it's possible to say he without really being related to him. Talk about him like he's an object. No, he's the subject. You are the Christ. Are you saying that to Jesus today? You. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Are you living the Christian life out in the second person or in the third person? Because, friends, you can't live the Christian life out in the third person. You have to live it out in the second person because you're a branch. He's the vine. He's the shepherd. You're the sheep. Jesus says back to you when you confess your faith in him, he says back to you through his word, by his spirit, you are my sheep because I am your shepherd. You are my brother's and my sisters, because I am your elder brother. You are my father's children, because I have given my life for your adoption. I have removed, there's no condemnation for you, concrete, you. There is therefore now no condemnation for you, because I have borne your sins in my body on the tree. You 
I am your advocate. I am your propitiation. I am for you. My chastisement, my stripes have healed you. That's Christianity, friends. Is that what you're living out? Finally, this is also meant to be a growing confession. It's not just a person, it's not just a confession to treasure and not just a a person-to-person confession, but it's also a growing confession. And what I mean by that is that this confession needs to get bigger and bigger and bigger the longer you grow as a the longer you go as a Christian. I mean, John, John Owen is right, okay? Absolutely right. I mean, when have I ever said he was not right? John Owen is right when he says that a little faith gives a whole Christ. I love that sentence. But here's the Mike Francis corollary. But even a little faith is never satisfied with a little Christ. Even your little faith will never be satisfied with a little Christ. And do you notice how how verse 21 is very careful in the way it describes Jesus' teaching about his cross and about his mission? He says, from it's verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples. You see, the point is this: this is not a one-time disclosure and therefore you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is not meant to be a one-time confession. There is a sense in which the reality of Christ's work and our need for that work and the implications of that work and the accomplishments of that work, we know that they're going to continue to grow for Peter and the other disciples over the distance of their life on this earth just as Jesus intends for them to grow in our lives. Okay? That's Christianity. And the best illustration I know for this, I'm not going to read it right now, but the best illustration I know for this is in Revelation chapter 5 when the Apostle John, he's, he's been brought into heaven. Now, the Apostle John's the longest living apostle. He lived probably 60 years after Jesus' crucifixion. He writes, he writes Revelation probably in the early 90s. He's been a Christian for a long time. All the other apostles are dead by this point. He, he's the disciple that Jesus loved. He's the disciple who, who leaned against Jesus' breast. He's the disciple to whom, to whom Jesus entrusted the care of Mary. He's the, one of the three disciples who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, one of the three disciples who was in Gethsemane. And yet, you know what happens in Revelation 4 is that John is brought by the Spirit into an, through an open door into heaven, and he sees, he sees the Father on his throne, and he sees the holiness of the Father. And, then, and, he, and there's a scroll in the Father's hand scroll in the Father's hand, which is the plan for history. And at the beginning of chapter 5, there's a strong angel that goes forth and, and, and asks all of creation, who is worthy to take that scroll or that book from the Father's hand and to open its seals? And there's no one found, no creature found in all creation who can open that book. And John starts to weep Why? Did he forget the gospel? No. Does he have spiritual amnesia? No. Is he somehow now worried that that Jesus Christ is not worthy to open the scroll? No, not at all. 
I think what has happened is that John, as a Christian, after many decades as a Christian, he has rediscovered the magnitude of what the gospel gives us. He has seen the holiness of God 60 years into the Christian life. He's seen it with fresh power. And he realizes as he sees the greatness of God, then that means that the worth of Jesus Christ, who is the answer for my sin against that holy God, is even greater than I ever realized before. And it shatters him. It breaks him. He can't be unmoved in the face of that. He sees the magnitude of the gift that he has been given by God to be joined to Jesus Christ. And friends, that too is Christianity over and over and over again. We must marvel far more than we do. Let's pray. Father, the first thing I want to ask of you is that you would forgive us, particularly me, for my flippancy. Which runs very deep. And these things are far too important and far too beautiful and far too wonderful. Forgive me for my shallow gratitude and shallow wonder and shallow joy in the face of these blessings. We are blessed because we are in Christ, not as the achievement of flesh and blood, but because you the living God, the Father of Jesus, have revealed these things to us and drawn us in your great kindness into him. And we bless you for that. And we pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name.